song about a man called Goth and a little boy wanted to be tarred with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals, though he didn't know why. Welcome to this episode of Hot on the Hill. We hope regular programming will be back for 2021 when moving around the state and being in the office are easier to do um, and therefore recording is also easier to do. Um, But if you have any questions to ask us, please email podcast at vic.alp.org.au and we welcome suggestions also. Uh, You can find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and if you have any trouble finding us on your favourite podcast app, drop us a line. You can also stream our episodes directly from thisislabor.org slash media where our whole Pot on the Hill catalogue is stored. This is our last episode of 2020 when hopefully the curse is lifted and 2021 brings much needed relief from what has been a terribly challenging year on so many fronts. And best to see this out is our guest Stephen Kukulis, economist, expert, advisor for what is sort of an explainer but also a deeper look at superannuation. Stephen, welcome to Pot on the Hill for a return visit. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Excellent. Now, let's begin with what we've brought you here to, to do, which is to explain a bit about um, about superannuation and sort of the politics, but also the economics around it. So I want to begin with the origins of the government scheme for super in Australia, just to get a sense of the mission of that policy as it began in the early 80s. Um, what did it originally seek to do and what system did we live with before it? Yeah, well, before it, it's really interesting that there was the age pension, of course, that was paid to people when they reached retirement age, Mm. and it was a pretty basic level of income. So it was hardly a sort of level of support that people could live in uh, a huge amount of comfort. It was okay, but it was no more than that. And what it was also meaning, of course, when uh, as Treasurer, Paul Keating uh, looked at it and sort of saw down the track. He looked at the ageing population and to be using the economic jargon, the burden on future taxpayers as people reached retirement age, if they didn't have their own savings, and of course the government would have to provide a decent pension to people, and that was really going to have huge pressure on the budget. So what Keating did in his wisdom and in consultation with the ACTU, Bill Kelty and the likes, was, and it was also at a time, don't forget, when we had... Uh, high inflation, we had centralised wage increases and all these things that you look back now and think, well, gee, wasn't that an odd time? Um, and so what they, uh, the government negotiated with the ACTU at the time was a, uh, a compensation for wage increases at that time, remember we're going back 30 odd years now, uh, that money would be paid at that stage at 3% into a superannuation fund that was yours, you the worker were receiving that money, it'd get paid into a fund that would manage that money. So in a sense, uh, a couple of things happened. One, you would slowly but surely be building your retirement savings as you sort of went through your working life. Two, you're actually an investor in the Australian economy. So the superannuation fund would buy and invest in in bonds and shares and the uh, commercial property market, infrastructure, these sorts of things. And you were, you know, admittedly a small, but a shareholder in these things. So it was actually adding to savings. Now, at the time too, Keating thought that it would should need to, and based on the calculations, I think he's still right all these years on, that you need to have that number at about 12% of income. So it started at 3%. And was gradually stepped up through the course of time, and um, uh, each time the coalition won, they froze it or postponed the increase. Uh, back with the Howard years, and of course, uh, when Abbott won in 2013, they froze it again. But so we're currently at nine and a half percent. So it's 
a good amount of money that's going in, but for someone starting their working life today, uh, 9.5% is just falling a bit short of what you need for a comfortable retirement. Right. And and does super and similar schemes around the world uh, that that other countries have adopted that's similar to super or to, to, to our um, our system, um, does this aid greater equality in society? Have, have we seen through evidence that there, there is a better quality of life for people of retirement age? Yeah, well, even though the scheme's been going for 30 years, in a sense, it's still in its infancy. Mm. I know that sounds an odd thing to say, but, you know, so if you started working, if you're, say, in your early to mid-40s, you've been working for 20-something years in paid work, uh, you've really only been halfway through the scheme and you're still 20-odd years from retirement. So you can't really be completely definitive. However, what we can see from the numbers in there and from the contributions in there uh, that uh, people who have been in paid work, even on, even on you know, roughly average uh, wages or modest wages, they've accumulated a decent amount of super, particularly if you've had your money in a low-fee industry-type fund. They're the ones that have had you know, quite uh, fantastic returns, to be frank, and you've accumulated a little bit of money. So for those listening, anyone who's, say, in their 40s or 50s, uh, you've been in paid work, have a look at your superannual ba- superannuation balance and think to yourself, well, would I have saved that if it wasn't for the compulsory superannuation? And I dare say most people, myself included, would probably say, no, I probably would have taken that extra 10, 20, 30 bucks a, a pay and probably spent it somewhere else. And I'd have very little in the way of um, of retirement savings. So, there, so it does aid equality because everybody, every worker uh, gets it. Uh, and it does and it does uh, build over time, particularly when the fees are, are nice and low. There is there is an issue, a sort of a subset of the super industry, which is not really related to superannuation, but there is a massive super gap between gender, um, uh, because women uh, earn less than men. They nine and a half percent of a smaller amount is nine and a half percent less that goes into your super fund, and because of uh, a whole lot of industry. Uh, pay gaps and time out of the workforce and you know what frankly is pretty average sort of childcare practices in Australia, women fall behind. But in terms of broader equality measures, super is one of those ones that certainly helps. Um, and for many people, especially those probably like myself, who, as you pointed out, my entire working life has had um, well, I've had super in the background, um, but it's, I'm still decades away from retirement. So it's probably a source of mystery for people like me uh, where it, it has always been there for, our, uh, for us as workers uh, um, as to why there's an, an, any ideological tension in super. It just It's like normal life, right? So what are the ideological and political tensions in super right now and, and what have they typically been? Oh, look, the coalition has a bee in its bonnet uh, and there are a couple of different levels to their their um, well dislike of super one of them is that they reckon uh, that people should choose where they put their money that I should get paid that nine and a half percent in my pay packet uh, less tax by the way um, mm. in my pay packet and I should be able to spend that wherever I want and so that's that freedom sort of type uh, approach whereas compulsory superannuation by definition is money that you cannot spend today and you cannot get your hands on. Uh, except in extreme circumstances, but you basically can't get your hands on that money until you hit retirement age. So that's one of their their concerns. The other one, of course, is the their, well, I'll I'll be strong here, their their hatred, I suppose you could call it, of the industry superannuation funds, which do have 
incredible success. They're not run like the big uh, for-profit uh, fund managers around uh, the various parts of Australia who charge higher fees. Uh, they perform less well. They don't have any, uh, well, the industry super funds don't have the conflicts of where to invest that some of the other funds have. So when you look at any time series, be it the last two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years of investment returns, the industry super funds have outperformed the private sector funds, that's ones run by the banks and the investment banks and these sort of people, by a huge amount. And the coalition hates that. They hate the fact that um, the industry super funds have been so successful and so successful for such a long period of time. So they're wanting to, I think, erode their ability to accumulate superannuation savings. And and that that is something that uh, we've we've seen through various attacks on the union movement through uh, the, the the parliamentary inquiries and and all of those sorts of things that they've done to to uh, diminish uh, union standing. Um, is this? And I'm trying to be, I suppose, devil's advocate a little bit. Is this really just about unions, or is there something that they they truly object to, and it is for the benefit of the banks? Yeah, I think it's uh, some, it's it's more the former. I think it's just that the fact that the unions tend to have some influence in industry super funds, how they're run, where the money's invested, and these sorts of things really gets the goat of the coalition mm. parties. And I think their their long run doctrinal objection to the union movement, to the power of uh, the labour side of the economy, rather than the capital side or the corporate side of the economy, is something that they really want to work against. So it feeds into that that approach where uh, they perceive that the union movement, here, here's another uh, example, this is them speaking, not me, here's another example of the uh, union movement having power over your retirement savings whereas you should have the choice about retirement savings. So it feeds into that that narrative as well. Well, and, and can you explain for, for dummies, uh, I'm counting myself <laughs> around here as well, um, the types of funds that there are. Um, so there is the, we oh, mentioned yeah, the super yeah. funds. I think, um, the, I mean, I saw a, a, a quick table that there was sort of 15%, I don't know if it was volume or number of accounts, uh, but 15% of the market was was um, industry super funds and then there's retail. What are the different, what, what's the breakup of different types of, of, of super funds? Well, there are a huge number of superannuation funds mm-hmm. and uh, and I think the, the two that really matter because I won't t- dare talk about hedge funds and these sorts of things, which are effectively superannuation funds and self-funded, uh, self-managed super funds, which are sort of popular for some people, particularly those who have a fair bit of money. Uh, so, But for the average worker, it's really the issue is whether we've got an industry fund, which is run for the benefit of people in particular job sets. A lot of uh, the union movement specifically allocate uh, or, or tell their members to invest their money in a particular fund, and they do so for good reason because the funds have got low fees and high returns. So as, a, as someone who looks at investment returns, that's exactly what you want. Whereas the private sector funds um, inevitably have much higher fees and poorer performance, and they're the ones that are easily influencing the government on issues to do with things like, and this is a very general uh, comment, but things like privatisation. They want the government to privatise roads, for example. They want um, the government to privatise airports. Uh, the 
latest one is a lot of um, infrastructure spending. Now, I won't go into the ins and outs of that because some of them have some merit, some of them have some merit, not all. But the the big money to be made is for the private sector being involved in those sorts of um, um, investment strategies from the government and they pick up huge fees and they don't give a damn about what the investment returns are. Whereas the industry funds, sure, they want to maximise the returns, but they're a little bit more considerate in how they approach their investment strategy. All right, well, if we've established that, that there's these uh, these clear differences between the style of fund, um, I want to go to the government's moves towards what they call flexibility, um, such as early access for a home deposit. Um, uh, what does an economist such as yourself say, just from an economic point of view about this, this strategy, um, does this type of flexibility, and, and for those who can't hear the wind rushing around the room, I'm actually doing air quotation marks when I say flexibility, <laughs> um, but um, yeah. does this help build economic security or is it a false promise? It's a bit of, it, it, is, a, it is a false promise. Now, um, what what you find, and this is a really important thing to remember, and I would recommend to everybody, the fund that you're with, spend a bit of time because you've probably got a fair bit of money at it. Spend a bit of time looking at, at your superannuation fund, even if you're in an industry fund that uh, does perform very, very well. Because within that scope, you can choose to some extent where that money is invested. So, for example, you can have a balanced fund which is sort of uh, taking advantage of all asset classes, a little bit of stocks, a little bit in bonds, a little bit in property. And so when one goes up and the other goes down, you're not going to get completely burnt or lose half your superannuation money, uh, which can happen sometimes if you have a very uh, high risk investment strategy. But so what you can also do, the flexibility is not necessarily between whether you invest in uh, fund manager ABC or XYZ, it's within the fund that you're in, you can sort of say, well, actually, I'm a young person, I'm in my mid to late 20s, I've started climbing the, the employment ladder, I'm earning okay money now, uh, you know, I'm not going to retire for 30 or 35, 40 years, whatever the case may be, I'm going to tick the box that says growth. So the fund managers with all these different investment strategies and asset classes that they invest in, some of them are more risky that do get a higher return. Uh, some, like bonds and cash, get very low returns, but you're not going to lose your money. So if you're perhaps at the older end of the spectrum, you know, a year or two or three away from retirement, you've built up a tidy nest egg of savings, you might want to say, look, I, I don't want to risk a stock market fall. I don't want to risk... Um, putting my money into the international um, markets. I want to keep it all at home. I want to keep it all in government bonds because I will not lose any money. I'll just sort of keep my money preserved. You can do those sorts of things within your superannuation fund. So I think that's what the coalition often forgets when they think about flexibility between funds is that within a fund, and I, you know, I, I, every fund that I'm aware of has a myriad of choices about where you allocate your money. So uh, you can sort of say, look, um, you know, depending on your appetite for investment risk or your knowledge, balanced funds, obviously the default, that's easy. You'll get a decent return over the long run. But if you're young and you want to take a bit of risk, you'll do something a bit more radical. If you're getting towards retirement, you'll be very conservative or you should be very conservative. Well, again, another question for for dummies, really. Can can you explain that there's the different tools of personal economic growth uh, that that are for you know ordinary people for workers? Um, there's wages, uh, there's property, and there's retirement savings. Um, now, and they ideally intersect 
uh, what's the fairest and most reliable model? And I, I may only be going for you know top three that I can I can sort of think off the top of my head. What what is the 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 ways in which people should plan with the different tools that are at, yeah. you know um, before them? Well, ideally, and I fully acknowledge that not everybody's got the capacity, the financial capacity to do this, and it depends on everyone's personal circumstances. But in my my ideal life investment strategy, if I can call it that. Obviously, you get your job and hopefully you keep your job. Hopefully, the economy is strong enough um, and that you retain your employment and you get a decent wage increase every year. Not a massive increase, but a decent one that's fair um, for, for your performance. And obviously, over time too, hopefully you get a few promotions. So you climb the ladder a little bit and get sort of into middle management, senior management roles and earn a few extra dollars each, each uh, week as well. That's part of it. So... With that sort of background and uh, having employment, two things that matter, and it comes from all of the studies about poverty in older age, we realise that there are a couple of issues there that we as a society and public policy is where the government's attack on super is misguided, that the best thing to avoid poverty in older age is to have your own house. It doesn't have to be the million-dollar mansion. Um, you can have a just a house that you live in so you're not paying rent and you're not paying a mortgage when you hit retirement age mm. and to have that superannuation contribution increase. So, in a sense, if you go through your working life and we do get the contributions coming through, that should be looked after, in a sense, for you. But they're the things that will provide a huge amount of financial security if you're in a position to do so. And, and going back uh, sort of to, to the beginning about where Australia is placed in the world, it, it punches above its weight, I understand, on the value of our collective super. Um, Australia's scheme, has it been a success in world standards? Oh, yes. We, we're very much the envy of the rest of the world. We, people look at our super scheme and think, how, how good is that? And I mentioned before that a lot of uh, other countries just pay a pension, which is, which is fine. Of course, we have that pension safety net there. Don't, don't forget, for people who, uh, through bad luck in their working lives, don't have a lot of super, um, when they hit retirement age, they will get the pension and so they should. It should be a decent amount of money too. But uh, if you put your 9.5% in, you'll have a whole lot more. So in other countries, they've got this problem, uh, particularly with the baby boomers approaching retirement. I think there's a wave of baby boomers reaching that retirement age in the US and the UK and throughout Europe. And certainly it's happened in Japan, where they've got a much older population than uh, most other uh, countries. They've run into this problem where, <coughs> pardon me, uh, where they've got a uh, a massive call on their budgets because so many people are now claiming the age pension because they don't have enough savings in retirement. So people look at us and say, well, gee, wasn't that visionary 30 years ago to, to implement compulsory superannuation? And the other part of it is, oh, I can't believe they're trying to undermine it, mm. um, including by not increasing it to 12% as, as speedily as practical. And the other thing, which I think is a uh, it'll come home in years to come. We'll look back at this period where people were able, and many people did pull out two, two lots of $10,000 or cleaned out their accounts altogether for people with relatively low balances uh, because the government encouraged them, if that's the right word, to mm. clean out their superannuation. So that, that benefit of um, uh, accumulation of interest over many, many years has been eroded because you know, instead of having 20 grand in your super account if you're a young person, and that working for you for the next 30 or 40 years is now down to zero. And an investment return of 
even 5% on zero amount of dollars is zero, zero dollars. Mm. If you've got 20 grand in there, you're getting 5%, you're picking up a thousand dollars a year just on your interest. On the politics of this, it strikes me as going against the grain of what liberals claim to be uh, supportive of, which is which is you know individuals holding wealth, holding property. Um, if if they've got a conservative uh, attack line on superannuation, but not just of industry super funds, but really of the entire system's capacity to build retirement savings. Where do you see super going in 20 years under that sort of conservative ideological leadership? Well, two things make me worried. If they do freeze the level at 9.5%, which they haven't decided yet, by the way, that'll be uh, in the lead up to the budget in uh, May next year. Uh, So we'll see what happens. But if they do decide to freeze it, then, of course, that path up to 12% will be eroded. Uh, If they do, as people like Tim Wilson are suggesting... They allow people to access superannuation for their home deposit. Uh, that's another way of eroding your retirement savings. Now, at, at face value, there, there's some people who might think, oh, gee, if I've got access to my uh, super, I will be able to put a deposit on my housing. But that's sort of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're mm. separate policies. Housing and housing affordability and housing ownership rates among young people has got to be addressed by different people, not from ran, raiding and ransacking your superannuation account. Uh, but if the coalition, um, I've, I've got no idea how much influence Tim Wilson has um, in, in the policy debate within the Liberal Party at the moment, but if there is this, if he is successful uh, about allowing people to pull money out of their super, then sure, they might be able to get their deposit for a house. But of course, that's at the cost of um, of uh, eroding their retirement savings so that they might have a house, but when they retire, they won't have any uh, superannuation savings. And, and a scheme like that would presumably, and this is where you being um, an expert economist is so valuable to me right now, because I would really uh, <laughs> appreciate your advice on this, but such a scheme such as that w- would surely have upward pressure on housing prices. Uh, you, you, you nailed it. Was just a, yes, you, you've absolutely nailed that point because, of course, and I think one of the things that when we look at housing affordability and house prices in Australia, the last thing it needs is extra demand being driven by uh, policies that, that encourage people to sort of whack huge amounts of money into housing. Um, uh, so it actually would probably undermine their own objective because the amount of money that people pulled out of super would probably go into the selling price for people who've already owned owned property, it would just fuel demand for housing and push up house prices. So it's a little bit like some of the criticisms that are often with um, uh, first home buyer subsidies that you you get 10 grand up front or 20,000, these sorts of things, which at face value, it seemingly helped the first home buyer, but inevitably it's really just reflected in the selling price. They go to the auction and they bid another 10 or 20 grand because they know they've got that extra money. So in a sense, it doesn't help that all it doesn't help them all that much. So to me, getting onto the housing issue, which is interlinked with super, it's about you know, your lifetime savings and lifetime financial well-being. Uh, the question on housing affordability there is that we've just got to build more houses, you know, that, that we do need. Uh, a range of houses. They've got to be in areas where people want to live, near public transport, near schools, near hospitals, near working facilities, and these sorts of things. So, um, if you know Tim Wilson and the Liberal Party wanted to address housing and housing affordability, rather than saying, "Well, we're going to sort of um, 
uh, chop superannuation to bits to achieve that objective. They should say, well, let's build a whole lot of social housing, as we've seen in Victoria with the Andrews government down there with their very progressive approach to uh, a huge increase in, in, um, in public sector housing. So build a lot of housing, build private sector housing. Uh, and make sure that, uh, well, we had an election on this, but you know, the negative gearing rules, which sort of fuel investor demand, so investors keep competing with first home buyers, change those laws, because they're the things that are actually hindering people from buying their first house, not the fact that they're having a bit of money put into superannuation for them. Mm. Uh, given the ideological history of some of the, the leadership, I think robbing Peter to pay Paul is probably the, uh, the wrong title for it. I think it's probably <laughs> something we could call robbing Paul to pay Peter. Um, but I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll let you guys decode what that means. Um, what's happened in other parts of the world under um, the that, that economic ideology to, to really diminish the retirement uh, balance of working people for short-term sugar hits? Has, has that, have we seen through the data that there's been a really uh, you know, poor effect? Can, we, can it be shown? No, well, frankly, no, because our system is quite unique, as we were sort of chatting a few moments ago, mm. that in, in most other countries, yeah, governments do encourage people to put their money into superannuation through a range of tax breaks and the like. So uh, you'll see in the US with their, I think they're called the 401k, 401K. is yeah. the plan that's there. Uh, people can put money into that. They sort of salary sacrifice rather than it compulsorily being taken out. So again, low income earners, of course, confronted with, you know, just surviving, frankly, on a week-to-week -week basis, don't put money in. They can't afford to. So when they hit retirement age, they've got, you know, very low levels of uh, retirement savings. So it hasn't been able to be uh, impacted there. Similar similar sort of things in the UK and uh, throughout Europe again, where it's, it's at your discretion to put money in. And sure, we've got that too. I can put more money into mm -hmm. super if I want to. That's great. If I'm in the ability to do that, that's terrific. But I think we've just got to keep coming back to this issue that if you start fiddling with what we've got uh, now that works very well and you allow people to pull their money out for any reason, you're, you're mixing up your policy objectives because super is about retirement incomes and having as many people as possible with a savings pool that provides them with a decent uh, living standard when they retire and housing separate, um, the where people invest in infrastructure and shares and bonds and these sorts of things is a separate question again. Retirement incomes policy should be just that. It's about getting as many workers through their working life having a pool of money to give them a decent retirement. Mm. Now, um, I, I sort of winding up with a, a, a question that is really more politics than it is economics um, because you've answered the question what people should do to protect their own, you know, personal uh, you know, superannuation by looking at the different options within uh, within the account they've got. Um, but what should we collectively be saying uh, from a political point of view to protect yeah. the institution of super? And what do we, how can we sort of decode the liberals' language that uh, I think is mixed up. They've obviously got a very, uh, you know, committed strategy to not only attack certain types of super and and make claims about uh, about the industry super funds, but but it's also an an ongoing rhetoric trying to chip away. I think at at 
the, the the model that we've got and and the reliable levers that we've got. What should we do to to as a as a movement to protect yeah. the institution? Sort of things like get your hands off my super, you know, get your yeah. hands off my retirement incomes. Mm. This is my money, um, and in fact, I've um, uh, set my working life on the basis of getting 12% of my retirement mm. income. Now that you're cutting it down to 9.5%, you're actually undermining my retirement scheme. Some of the arguments they used in the franking credit debate mm, when mm. you know they, they were eroding it. So get your hands off my super. It's my money. It's my contribution. And it's uh, just a part of my uh, working terms and conditions. So don't, don't erode that. Get people to have a look at their superannuation balance and, and genuinely ask them, even, even people on modest incomes, uh, have a look at your super balance. And if you've been in the paid workforce for 10, 15, 20 or more years, of course, ask yourself, would I have saved that money? Look at what compulsory superannuation has done to me, the worker. I've got money there that I would almost certainly not have saved um, because it is a relatively small amount per week. But for 52 weeks a year, for 10, 15 and 20 years, with a low fee fund manager who's earning five, six percent a year, you do that, put that into your um, uh, superannuation calculator, and all of a sudden, a small amount of money in year one becomes a bit more in year five, becomes a whole lot more in year 10. And by the time you then get closer to retirement, you actually realize that you've got a decent retirement income. And don't let the coalition take that away from you. And it, it is, you, you point out, franking credits, that there is a, a quite uh, you know, clear uh, trail of hypocrisy coming from the coalition yes. on, on these matters. What, uh, when, when you would contrast the franking credits debate with the superannuation debate, what hypocrisies do you tease out? Oh, look, that, the, the problem with the franking credit is that people were double-dipping effectively in, in their... Uh, um, getting the franking credit refunds. Not only did they collect the dividend from the company in the first instance, which is fine, but then they were getting uh, the same amount of money basically topped up from the Commonwealth. And by definition, well, first of all, it only went to 3% of, um, uh, of the adult workforce or, or the adult population in Australia, so very few people got it. And to get it, by definition, you had to own shares that were mm. paying dividends. Mm. And uh, not many people do. Not everybody does. And uh, so to the extent that people were claiming these franking credits and getting huge um, double dip, if you like, from the from the taxpayer was a real problem. Whereas superannuation is just your employer hires you knowing that they've got to pay you X dollars per week with your wage. Mm. They know they've got to pay nine and a half percent super, soon going up, or in theory, going up to 12%. Mm. They know they've got to provide you with um, a safe workplace. They know they've got to provide you with, or depending where you're working, of course, mm. um, you know, sick leave and holiday leave. You know, again, with the gig economies undermining some of these things as well, I must mm. confess. But, mm. you know, that someone hires you knowing that they've got to pay these things and, and they do it happily. They need you to work for them. That's, mm. you know, if the economy's strong enough, that's how we generate good jobs good paying jobs with good superannuation contributions attached to them. So just remind, I think, the the voters out there, the people out there, that super is a, a good thing 
um, and the coalition's trying to undermine your ability to save for your retirement. Mm. And and that my final question really is on the universality of superannuation. We talked uh, a little bit before you, you sort of raised the, the fact that there are some gaps still in um, the universality of super, or, or I should say the, the equality of super, is that there is still a gap when it comes to um, a gender gap, for example, with superannuation. Um, but some of our best most impressive and uh, progressive schemes um, uh, in Australia's history have been things that were universal. Um, our, our compulsory, secular and free education um, was was a universal model. Our Medicare is universal. Um, is superannuation universal? It, it almost is. There's a, there is an issue which I think is being addressed about people on the gig economy with they earn less than $450 per gig uh, the person who hires them doesn't pay that 9.5%. So if you're a gig economy worker and you pick up 200 here, 150 there, 300 there, so you still could be earning okay money um, through each of your little projects that you work on, you don't get that uh, uh, super contribution paid for. You've got to do that yourself, and many people don't. The, the data shows that. Then there's a lot of issues to do with uh, people on maternity leave. Now, some companies do pay it, but not everybody. And that's a problem for, for women and it leads to the superannuation gap on a gendered basis. So that's a concern. On carers, there's um, one of the other issues is that a lot of um, uh, people in society do unpaid care work. They care for, well, their children, their older parents, uh, a person in their family with a disability or someone who's sick in their family. And they don't get paid for that. They do that for love and the government sort of saves a lot of money by not having mm. that person in a publicly funded um, uh, facility to look after the aged or, who, or the person with a disability. Mm. But they earn no money and 9.5% of no money is nothing going to superannuation. So there is a case for perhaps carers being given a, a bit of a, a helping hand, a one-off payment. It doesn't have to be huge, but, you know, some money going into superannuation through um, through those means. So there's a few things there that I think can enhance the superannuation industry. Uh, yes, it needs to be regulated, of course. Um, there's no doubt that I think it's largely unregulated. It's interesting that the Banking Royal Commission a couple of years ago found very little in the way of the industry super funds having any problems. It was interestingly the mm. the private sector funds and the retail funds mm. and the and the banks that were all the you know, generally the um, less well-behaved, let's call it. So you do need regulation and the like. But, you know, in a, in a climate now where the super funds are heavily uh, exposed, super fund mem members can look at their account every minute of every day if they like and see where their money's being invested. Oh, you can choose ethical funds now. So you don't want it going into coal. You don't want it going into people who manufacture bombs and these sort of things. Well, mm. bloody hell. Don't invest in them. Tell mm -hmm. your super fund manager to buy things that you're happy to invest in. So there's a whole myriad of issues there. Just even if you find it a bit mind-numbing, have a look at your super balance. Have a look at where your super fund is investing their money and um, really think about it and say, well, if, if you're happy with it, terrific. That's going to be a good thing. And I think most people in an industry fund should be. Well, I hope that uh, some, some of our listeners, particularly those who, uh, like me, probably don't spend enough time thinking about it, take that advice and, uh, <laughs> um, and that, that uh, you know, we, we also collectively have a, uh, 
uh, a way to prevent these sorts of ideological attacks. And the other thing to remember that, uh, again, this is the politics. Remember, it was a Labor initiative. Uh, Labor Party's the only one who's proposed increasing it over time. The Coalition have reluctantly had a few increases in their terms in office, but they hate it. They don't want it to go up. So if you want super to be part of your life and importantly your kids life when they start the workforce and Mm. all the rest of it you know there's only one way that that can be sustained well Stephen Kukulis thank you so much for giving us a bit of a tutorial today and um and talking through those uh those matters I think it's very important for us to to be on the alert for this uh for this issue as it emerges continually great and thanks for the chance to chatting um (laughs) and uh it's been a lot of fun thank you no problem thank you Stephen